Let's open our Bibles to Psalm 86. We'll get as far as we can, 86, 7, and 8, as far as we can get along in our teaching tonight. It may go slower, it may go faster, however much we're able to cover. But we'll begin with Psalm 86, verse 1. This is a psalm and prayer, and a psalm of prayer and praise, I should say. The first part of it's a man of prayer, and then his praise beginning with verse 8. And uh, we'll... Uh, look on down at verse 14, it shows you the prayer of a man in trouble. So we begin with verse 1, and it's the prayer of a poor man that we have in uh, the very first verse. He says, Bow down thine ear, O Lord, hear me, for I am poor and needy. This may well represent all of us as far as spiritual poverty is concerned. You know, the Bible says, "Blessed Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The first thing that we have to learn is that we're really poverty-stricken in a spiritual way, as well as we may be in other ways, but spiritually we may be very poor. And uh, in Psalm 34, verse 6, it says this, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him. And this is David. David says, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him. And saved him out of all his troubles. So back in the psalm that we're studying, he says, Lord, bow down thine ear. He's talking to God to bow down his ear. Bow down thine ear, O Lord. Hear me, for I am poor and needy. And we all have to plead in that way. This is the plea of the righteous man. In verse 2, Preserve my soul, for I am holy. O thou, my God, save thy servant that trusteth in thee. He begins to plead. The first was the request of a poor man. He requested that God would bow down his ear. Here's the plea of a righteous man. The Bible says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. When he says, I am holy, he doesn't mean that he is sinless. When he says, I am holy, he actually means uh, that one whom thou favorest. He's holy because of grace, because God has given him grace in his sight. If you have a marginal reference, it says, one whom God or thou hast favors. So we're not holy in ourselves, but we can, from a standpoint of being right with God, call upon him. So the plea of a righteous man, James says in 5.16, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Then I want you to look at verse 3. It says, Be merciful unto me, O Lord, for I cry unto thee daily. Now, he was anxious that God would look to him and be merciful to him. And he cried unto the Lord daily. This may be a picture of uh, our need to continue to cry to the Lord. In other words, to the perseverance of prayer. If you remember in Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, where Jesus speaks of praying, he said men ought always to pray and not to faint, not to give up. Then he gives us the, the story of the uh, unjust judge who, because of a certain woman that cried to him continuously and would not give up, he finally granted her request. And you and I <clears throat> need to not only pray continually, but to, to realize that our only source of help is in God. And so look to Him and cry daily unto Thee, as it says. For I cry unto Thee daily. Now the third thing, I mean the fourth thing you find is in verse 4. The prayer of a sorrowful man. Rejoice the soul of thy servant, for unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. He was sorrowful, but he wanted God to make him to rejoice. And he says, Rejoice the soul of thy servant. Make my soul to rejoice. Bring rejoicing out of my sorrow. That's what we need. Sometimes we're 
a sorrowful person that needs to be made to rejoice. Paul, <clears throat> in the book of Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4, says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Someone might say, well, how can I rejoice in the things of God when I'm so sorrowful and so down? But he says, that's what God's Word tells us to do. We may be sorrowful, we may be down, but the psalmist here says, rejoice my, the, the soul of thy servant. And from the context, you can see that he was already a very sorrowful uh, person. Now then, beginning with verse 5, we see the, the prayer of an enlightened man. Look at verse 5. He was enlightened as to God. He knew about God. When we speak of enlightenment, we want to know what a person knows about the Lord. Especially if we talk about enlightenment and spiritual things. What do you know about God? He says in verse 5, For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. That's quite a mouthful, isn't it? He knew about the goodness of God. Didn't David say, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life? He knew about uh, the forgiveness of God. The Bible says, who forgiveth all thine iniquities. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. He knew about the mercy of God. Let me read uh, Psalm 57. Let's see, Psalm 57 and verse uh, 10. It says this, for thy mercy is great unto the heavens. And he says, and thy truth under the clouds. So this psalmist knew about the mercy of God. So what are we talking about here? A very enlightened man. God's word enlightens us as to, as to how God is and what he is and how uh, his character, his being, what he will do. He says he, in this fifth verse, thou art good, ready to forgive, plenteous in mercy. And who is this mercy unto? Unto all them that call upon thee. Unto all them that call upon me. All we have to do is turn to God and pray. And pray in earnest. We're to pray in earnest. We're to pray um, in supplications. Praying always with all prayer and supplications in the Spirit, says Paul in Ephesians 6 verse 18. And thus, if we pray in this way, uh, God will hear. We ought to make sure that we pray for God to uh, be merciful to us, be ready to forgive and we know God for His goodness. We're enlightened to the fact that God will hear us. And it says unto all them that call upon thee. Sometimes we call upon man. Sometimes we call upon one another. And we look below for help instead of above. We need to look above for help. We need to look Godward for help. We need to look to God in the day of trouble. Look at the next verse. Give ear, O Lord, verse 6, Give ear, O Lord, unto my prayer, and attend the voice of my supplications. And then verse 7, In the day of my trouble I will call upon thee, for thou wilt answer me. In the day of my trouble. Psalm 46, verse 1. Let me read it for you. Psalm 46, verse 1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. A man that is born of a woman, Job says, is of a few days and they're full of trouble. Well, if God is a very present help in trouble, then we ought to know where to look in the day of trouble. And the psalmist said here, Psalm 86, verse 7, In the day of my trouble, I will call upon thee, for thou wilt answer me. He had faith, didn't he? He says, for thou wilt answer me. All right, now beginning with verse 8, we find there's praise. 
there's praise beginning with verse 8. It says, Among the gods there is none like unto thee, O Lord, neither are there any works like unto thy works. Two things here. There is no God like the Lord, and his works are unique. There's no works like his. There's no God like him. There's no works like him. Sometimes when the Bible speaks of gods, and God himself speaks of others as gods, he doesn't mean gods as if there are many gods or other gods than himself. He says, there's no God beside me as far as God Almighty. But he speaks of men that he's put in places of rulership or leadership, and they are supposed, they are called sometimes gods or judges, for a better word, so that we won't misunderstand, even though God would speak of them as gods. And the psalmist here speaks of others as gods. He's not putting them on the level of God Almighty. He's only speaking of those men whom, uh, who are deserving of God's respect, uh, of our respect as rulers that God has put in a place of rulership upon this earth. So they're in a place of, as judges. In fact, one of these scriptures we gave you uh, in a few of the Psalms back, we gave you a reference in Deuteronomy where he speaks of them as judges. Now then, <clears throat> Jesus himself said, if he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, how say ye of the Son of Man, of Christ, whom he has sent, thou blasphemest. In other words, because he says, I am the Son of God. They, they accuse Jesus of blasphemy because he says, I'm the Son of God. Well, he says, if, you, if he called, if God called them gods to whom the word of God was sent, I'm only claiming that I'm the Son of God. And why do you say I blaspheme? I'm not claiming God, even though he was God manifest in the flesh. He's, he merely claimed to them, I am the Son of God. Well, to them, of course, that meant he was the second person of the Godhead. But nevertheless... Uh, they had no use of accusing him of blasphemy because he took his rightful place as the Son of God. Now then, notice it says something not only about God's, but about his works. What about his works? Look in verse 8. Neither are there any works like unto thy works. God's, what are God's works? Look in Isaiah 44. Let me give it to you. Isaiah 44, verses 24 through 28. Well, uh, let's look at Isaiah 44, verses 6 through 8, and see this first point that we're talking about, about God's, verses 6 through 8. And then we'll go to Isaiah 44, right on down, verses 24 through 28. Verses 6 through 8, it says this, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last, and beside me there is no God. See, he claims there, there is no God. And who, as I shall call and shall declare it and set it in order for me since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come let them show unto them fear ye not neither be afraid have not I told thee from that time and have declared it ye are even my witnesses is there a God beside me he asked the question yea there is no God I know not any so when it comes to claiming as God almighty he declares there Plainly, in Isaiah 44, verses 6 through 8. But now then, the one we're talking about, his works being unique, if you look down to verse uh, 24, look what it says. Thus saith the Lord thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb, I am the Lord that maketh all things. Now look, 
that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. What about his works? Is there anyone that's ever stretched forth the heavens or spread abroad the earth? Look at verse 25. That frustrateth the tokens of the liars, and maketh diviners mad, and turneth uh, wise men uh, backward, and maketh their knowledge foolishness, that confirmeth the word of his servant, and performeth the counsel of his messengers, that saith to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be inhabited, and to the cities of Judah ye shall be built, and I will raise up the decay places thereof. Right on down. Thus saith to the, that saith to the deep, be dry. He says to the oceans, be dry, and I will dry up thy rivers. That saith of Cyprus, he is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure. Even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. In other words, God stretched forth the heavens, he laid the earth, he has power over men, he makes uh, the frustrations of those that are against him, and he makes their knowledge foolishness. Does all this. That's God. So his works then are unique, aren't they? Let's go back to our Psalm 86, verse 9. And we're going to find his praise here is universal praise. Look at verse 9. All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord. There will be a time that all nations will come and worship before him and shall glorify thy name. They do not right now, do they? But he's telling us there will be universal praise. The Bible says concerning Jesus, Philippians chapter 2, God made him a little, uh, um, he took upon him the form of a servant, servant, was made in the likeness of man. And the Bible says being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Now listen. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You have there universal praise that will come to Jesus. All things will be subject to him. Revelation 11. Let me read it for you. Revelation 11, beginning with verse uh, 15. Here's what it says. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were... Great voices in heaven saying, <clears throat> The kingdoms of this world, look at this, are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. Look at verse 18. And all nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and so on and so forth. All nations became mad at it, but he is worthy of all praise. The kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. If it were so today, it would be a different world, wouldn't it? If that were so today, we wouldn't have the wars, we wouldn't have the famines, we wouldn't have the, the turmoil that exists in the world today. But Jesus said, till the time does come that he returns, there will be all of these things. There will be all of these things that we face. Sometimes it's hard for us to understand, but it was predicted. The Lord foretold it. And you know what's the real cause of all of it? The problems and the sorrows and the heartaches, 
sin, sin, and greed, and the hearts of it comes forth from the hearts of men all over the world, and evil and wicked men especially. That's the reason that we see what we see today. James says, From whence cometh wars and fightings among you? He says, Come they not forth even from your own lust, even from man's own greed, even from the inside of man? That's that's what the Apostle James says. That's where uh, lusts come. I mean, wars come from. And as long as we have wicked men in the world, there's going to be these. Until Jesus comes again, we're going to be faced with all these problems. In fact, I think that right now we're facing up to a we see all the um, starving children on the television and hear of it on the news. And the, the, the whole world is mindful of the fact that there's much of the world today in famine. We center on one little part of the world, Ethiopia, but it's all over Africa. It's all over other places. Look at China. Africa's not the only place. But look over there at the starving people. The people that do not even have water to drink. There are no wells, no, no water to, to even drink, let alone to bathe and to, and to have other needs. It's a terrible situation. The Lord predicted that these things would happen. He said there'll be wars, there'll be earthquakes, there'll be famines, there'll be pestilences. And he says all these are the what? Beginning of sorrows. This is just the beginning of it. But then he's going to come in power and great glory. There's a time pointing. There's a, all these are signs of the time that the Lord, pointing to the time that the Lord will come. All right, back to this now. Uh, verse 9, if you have it. All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and shall glorify thy name. There's coming a time that there will be universal praise. They'll glorify the name of God. They'll worship before the Lord. Verse 10 shows us he does wondrous things. For thou art great and doest wondrous things. Thou art God alone. Who is it that is alone the one that's able to save? The wondrous thing that Jesus does is... Christ is able to save them to the uttermost, everlastingly, completely and eternally, that come to God by Him. Isn't that a wondrous thing among the sons of men? Isn't it a wondrous thing that out of all this filth and all of this sin and all of man's fallen state and condition and original sin, that there's one who is not only dead and buried and risen again from the dead, but ascended to the right hand of God, who is able to save them completely and eternally that come to God by Him. Men ought to look to Jesus today for salvation. Men ought to begin to look to Him and Him alone for salvation. The Bible says, Neither is there salvation in any other, not only in any other man, but in any other, any other thing, any other being. For there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Who would you look to today in this hour of need, in your hour of spiritual need? Would you look to man? Would you look to the Pope? Would you look to a priest? Would you look to a preacher? Would you look to a church? Would you look to a religion? Would you look to a denomination? You're looking all in the wrong place. All in the wrong place. Looking to Jesus. He's the Savior. He alone can do that. Verse 10, For thou art great, and doest wondrous things. Thou art God alone. I want you to see something else he does in verse 11. Teach me thy way, O Lord. He is a good teacher, a great teacher. Teach me thy paths. Psalm 25, verse 4. Isaiah 2, verse 3. He will teach us of his ways. John 6, 45. Let me read it for you. 
sixth chapter of John in verse 45. It is written in the prophets, Jesus said, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard, listen carefully, and hath learned of the Father cometh to me. That's what Jesus said. A man that's heard and has learned of the Father, he comes to me because he's taught of God that Christ is the Son of God that was sent into the world, who is the Savior, and they turn to Christ. They shall all be taught of God, said the prophets. And he says, Therefore every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh to me. Because they know he's the Son of God, and they know he's the Savior. All right, let's get back to this. Psalm 86, verse 12. Well, we didn't finish verse 11. Something else in verse 11. It says, Teach me thy way, O Lord, I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. You see, God alone knows the hearts of men. God alone knows your heart. And the psalmist says, Unite my heart <coughs> to fear thy name. And our hearts originally are what? Wicked and deceitful. Jeremiah 17 verse 11 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. It means it's full of deceit. It says, who can know it? The heart is deceitful. Do you know all the sons of men by nature have one heart? All just alike. You can look in yourself and say, My, I can understand that my heart is deceitful. Well, you can just look right across the aisle or anywhere you want to look. The next fellow and his is the same way. You say, Preacher, how do you know that? The Bible says there's not a just man, Ecclesiastes. There's not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. The Bible teaches that we're all sinful by nature. The Bible says further in Ecclesiastes that uh, because sentence against an evil work, the evil heart of man, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore, the heart, listen carefully, the heart, singular, of the sons, plural, of men, is fully set in them to do evil. See, all of men are one heart. The heart of the sons of men. It doesn't say the hearts of the sons of men, or the heart of, the, of one son of man, or one individual, but the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. So, we're talking about God who knows the hearts, God who knows the sinfulness of the heart, God who is able to unite the heart to himself. Look at it quickly, verse 11. Teach me thy way, O Lord, I will walk in thy truth. It's good to have the determination to walk in God's truth. Unite my heart, because his heart would be afar off. Unite my heart to fear thy name. Many men will not fear the name of the Lord. But he says, unite my heart to fear thy name. Look at verse 12. I will praise thee, O Lord, my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify thy name forevermore. In this particular division of praise, the first part was prayer, wasn't it? And now we're talking about praise. He says there's no God like unto the Lord, beginning with verse 8. Talks about his works in verse 8. Talks about his praise being universal in verse 9. Talks about him doing wondrous things in verse 10. Talks about him being a good teacher in verse 11. He talks about God being able to unite the hearts to himself in verse 11. And now in verse 12, wholehearted praise is due unto the Lord because of these things. Wholehearted praise. I will praise thee, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify thy name forevermore. We need to praise God because of his mercy. Look in verse 13. His mercy in deliver, delivering us from a devil's hell. His mercy in delivering us out of the lowest pit. Here, the lowest grave, or the lowest hell, 
Hell in the Bible is not always spoken of in the terms of eternal punishment. Sometimes in the Old Testament it means the grave. In the New Testament, Jesus refers to hell in another sense of the word. Gehenna uses a different word. He's talking about a burning fire. And he, he speaks of fire as everlasting and eternal torment and judgment. That's the hell that Christ speaks of that will be the judgment later of all the wicked dead that will be raised up and cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Revelation 21 verse 8 says, The fearful and unbelieving, abominable, murderers, all liars, and whoremongers shall have their part in the lake of fire and brimstone, which is the second death. But here, it's the grave. For great is thy mercy toward me, and thou hast delivered my soul from the lowest hell, or the lowest part of the pit, the lowest grave. You know, that's why certain groups think that you and I are ignorant of the word when they say there's no hell. They say it means the grave. And instead of acknowledging that there's a half-truth in that, and that many times the word hell does mean the grave, but many times the word hell in the New Testament that Jesus uses means eternal punishment. Instead of facing up to both viewpoints and understanding what the Word of God says, we say all of it means hell. And it doesn't all mean that. But there is a hell. There's also the grave that's spoken of. And we get over in the New Testament and we have the hell that Jesus spoke of, which is eternal punishment we've already referred to. So let's be truthful and acknowledge the truth, whether it meets with our uh, fancy or not, and what we've been taught or not. And here, thou hast delivered my soul from the lowest hell. If you have a marginal reference, it says grave. Now then, O God, the proud. Look at this. Begin with verse 14. We want to see something else. Begin with verse 14. He says, we're going to find the, the prayer of the man in trouble. The prayer of the man in trouble. And his enemies are described in this 14th verse. Look at it carefully. O God, the proud are risen against me. Now look at another one. And the assemblies of violent men have sought after my soul. And look at the last part. And have not set thee before them. Three things about the enemies described here. First of all, they're proud and they're violent and they do not fear God. See those three things? They're proud. They're violent men. And look, they do not fear God. Have not set thee before them. They have not set thee before them. The Bible says the proud he knoweth afar off. God knows all about them. Let me read in Psalm uh, 10, Psalm 10 and verse 8. It says this. He sitteth in the lurking places of the villages, in the secret places doth he murder the innocent. Here's the violent man. His eyes are privily set against the poor. So we're talking about the enemies of God are the enemies of the psalmist, and they are enemies of God too. You know, your enemies are God's enemies if you're on God's side. The psalmist, his enemies were God's enemies. Because if the Bible teaches that uh, if God be for us, he's on our side, who can be against us? There are enemies. There are opposing forces. The main thing you and I need to be concerned about is lining up with God and being on His side, being on the right side. And then we don't need to worry about the enemies because if God be for us, who can be against us? But notice this Psalm uh, 86, verse 14. O God, the proud are risen against me. He speaks of the proud, first of all. And God knows about the proud afar off. We read about the assemblies of the violent men. We've already referred to it in Psalm 10, verse 8. And look, this last part. 
and have not set thee before them. What kind of people are these anyway? They have not set thee before them. They're people that do not fear God and will not put God before their eyes. Do not consider that God is almighty. Do not consider that God is a love and God is merciful and God is gracious. Do not consider that God is a God of judgment. They do not put God before their eyes. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. In other words, they act just like God does not exist. Now, the second one, his God is described. His enemies are described. Now, his God is described in verse 15. Look at verse 15. The psalmist, God, is described here. But thou, O Lord, art full of compassion. There's one thing. And gracious. Two things. And long-suffering. God is full of compassion. God is gracious. And God is long-suffering. Is there a better description you can give God? God is full of compassion. That means He's sympathetic. That means He loves. That means He cares. The Bible speaks of Christ who can... Uh, uh, the priest and then of Christ in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 2, speaking of the sons of Aaron that were taken from among men who can have compassion upon the ignorant and on them that are out of the way. And Jesus himself was the one who really could have compassion as our great high priest and gracious. Look at this. Gracious and long-suffering. Psalm 111, verse 4 says, The Lord is gracious. 2 Peter 3, verse 9 says he's long-suffering. God is long-suffering, suffers long to usward. <clears throat> you and I wouldn't suffer long, would we? We're so quick, we'd say, well, I put up with that just a little while, and now I'm tired of it. But God is long-suffering to whom? To usward. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God suffers long with man. God suffers long with his people. Really, that scripture has reference to God's people. God is long-suffering to usward. He wants His people to come to the place of repentance. You say, what about the sinner repenting? He wants the sinner to repent and turn to Him too for, as, and receive Him as Lord and Savior. But He wants His people to return. He's long-suffering to usward. He puts up with us. He sympathizes with us. He's full of compassion, gracious, long-suffering. Now look, His needs are stated the psalmist needs in verse 16 through 17. What are his needs? First, he needs mercy. Oh, turn unto me and have mercy upon me. What are you and I in need of today? Mercy. And then what else? Give thy strength unto thy servant. And the third thing? Save the son of thine handmaid. Look at that. You see it, verse 16? Mercy and strength and salvation. We need strength. We need saving as well. What about the one that cries for mercy? Will he receive mercy? Remember the Pharisee and the publican? The Pharisee says, God, I thank thee that I'm not like other men are, for I do this and that and the other. I pray and I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I possess, and I do this. Well, God knows what we do. No need for us to go around bragging about it. Most of it's too far short of what we ought to do. But that's what the Pharisee prayed. I thank thee that I'm not like other men. I wonder if we don't get a little of that Pharisee in us once in a while. But then what, what did the publican pray? The Bible says he would not so much as lift up his eyes to heaven, but smote upon his breast and said, God, be merciful. He wanted mercy. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. 
The reason he went down to his house justified, he knew that he needed God's mercy. And he said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. We're talking about two men that went up to the temple to pray. We're talking about two religious men. We're not talking about the sinner. We're talking about two religious men. How are we accepted in the sight of God? Our attitude toward God. Do we need His mercy and grace and strength? Are we so proud as we want to tell Him all that we've done? We don't do anything like we ought to. God's mercy. The publican said, God, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. What about strength here in verse 16? He says, Give thy strength unto thy servant. Does God's servant need strength? You and I need strength. The Apostle Paul said, Philippians 4, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. You and I need inward strength. We need spiritual strength. The Bible says, Strengthen with all might by His Spirit in the inner man. You see, we don't need so much strength on the outer man. We need physical strength to live, of course. But we're talking about where is the real need? Strengthened with all might by His Spirit in the inner man. Paul prayed that in the book of Ephesians. Let me turn you to it in the sixth chapter. No, it's not the sixth chapter. It's the um, it's the fifth chapter. No, let me give you the right place. There's too too many that are similar. I'll give you another one. The one I really want to get to is the third chapter, verse sixteen. That He would grant you, according to the riches of His grace, three verse sixteen the riches of His glory, to be strengthened, now look, to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man. And Paul says that God would grant you this strength inside. And you need this spiritual strength to to exist as a Christian. You need this spiritual strength daily to draw upon. You need it. We need it in every avenue of our lives as Christians. And then what about the uh, verse 16? Back now in our text, 86 verse 16. It says, And save the son of thine handmaid, his saving strength. We need to be saved from a lot of things. Paul said that he need to be saved from or delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. We need salvation as far as the soul is concerned. We need saving daily from the cares of this life and the troubles that we face. But we know we need salvation that's eternal that we can only find in Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us neither is there salvation in any other. There's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And then look at verse 17. You have it? Psalm 86 verse 17, the last verse. He says, show me a token for good. God, I want you to give me a token. In other words, there won't, he wants some evidence that God is with him. Evidence of God's goodness in order to show that God is on his side. In other words, he wants God to show him, give him a token that he's with him so that he'd be able to refute his enemies. Show me a token for good that they which hate me may see it. Isn't that like Psalm 23? The psalmist said, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. The psalmist said, He said, you blessed me, you gave me a token for good. You prepared a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Here the psalmist is praying much the same thing. Show me a token for good that they which hate me may see it and be ashamed. Because thou, Lord, 
has hoped me and comforted me. Because, God, you've blessed me in spite of all the fact that I have enemies round about. Now, that's what we want. We want evidence of God's goodness in order to refute the enemies. The Bible says in Acts 4, verse 13, Acts 4, verse 13, that they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they took knowledge of him of them. They perceived that they were ignorant and unlearned men, but they saw their boldness, and they took knowledge of, him, of them that they had been with Jesus. Rather than all the knowledge and all the uh, so-called wisdom of this world, they detected in Peter and John that they were followers of Jesus Christ and His teaching, that they were companions of Jesus. That's what this verse is all about. Show me a token for good that they which hate me may see it and be ashamed because thou, o, thou Lord, hast opened me and comforted me. We'll let that suffice for our lesson tonight.